You can join me in opening your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark and chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one under a seat nearby. And Mark chapter 9 is on page 844 in those Bibles. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for speaking to us through your word. And so, because we are gathered here to read the Bible and hear from your word, we are eager for what only you can do in our minds and hearts and lives through this. And so, we pray that you would cause our eyes to see the beauty of Christ um, risen right now and on the pages of Scripture here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, now that we're in Mark chapter 9 in our series in the Gospel of Mark, we've crossed the midpoint of the Gospel of Mark, and that doesn't mean just we're halfway through, but Mark has carefully structured the story of Jesus to show that there was a turning point um, at halfway through his story. So last Sunday, we saw Jesus' glory, his radiance on the top of a mountain. He was transfigured, and that mountain is a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. So you can think of the first eight chapters kind of building toward that mountain and coming to the peak of it, and the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark are focused on who Jesus is, and it culminates with the confession that He is the Christ, which means He really is the long-awaited Messiah and King who's going to be the true king of not only Israel, but all nations in the world. And that when we see his radiant beauty at the top of the mountain, we see that he is God himself with us, truly God, truly man, and the true king over all things. And now in the second half of Mark, Jesus comes down the mountain and he heads toward the cross. And so, If the first eight chapters show us who Jesus is, the second half of Mark shows us what Jesus came to do. He came to bring his kingdom through the cross, through his death and resurrection. So Mark is now going to repeat a word, uh, and that word you'll see over these next few chapters is way. Now in our English translations, there's actually several English words that are used to express this. You'll see way or road or path. It's all reflecting the same Greek word, though, and it's intentional by Mark because he's getting this from the, go- the book of Isaiah. I almost said the gospel of Isaiah, but that'd be actually fitting. People call it the fifth gospel because of how rich it is, pointing to Jesus. So Isaiah promised that God would come to his people, and he would make a way through the wilderness toward Jerusalem where he would reign over a renewed creation and his kingdom. And Mark is showing us that Jesus has come as this one true God, and now he is making his way through the wilderness toward Jerusalem, and he will be enthroned as king, but not how anyone expected, because his way through the wilderness is the way of the cross. It's the way of costly love. It's the way of sacrificial love, and so on this journey, we find out that he is going to be enthroned, but first on the cross, and then in his resurrection, and on the way, we find out what it means to follow him. So if you're going to come after him, you'll be following him on the way of Jesus, which is the way of costly love. And so from here on out in the Gospel of Mark in these next few chapters, there's a laser focus on Jesus headed to the cross and what it means to follow him on the way of the cross as disciples. So to be a Christian is to follow him on this way. So this morning we'll be beginning the way of Jesus to the cross, and on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus is going to be teaching his disciples what it means to actually trust him, 
what it means to actually follow him. So what does it look like to trust and follow Jesus? Well, this first story in this section shows us. It's another miracle story, but it's not here just to show that Jesus can do miracles. This story gives us a lesson in faith. It shows us that trusting Jesus involves bringing to Jesus your desperation, your doubts, and your dependence. And this is an important lesson for Christians in the West and in America to learn. Many think that Christianity is about self-sufficiency and self-confidence. They think that you have to get your life together and be totally confident in your beliefs. They think there's no place for desperation and weakness. They think there's no place for doubting. And we see this in the people we hold up as examples of the faith. And so churches then will become places where people don't feel safe to express their desperation. Churches become places where people don't feel safe to express their doubts. Churches become places where people don't feel safe to bring to Jesus a full dependence on him. But in this story that we'll read here now, Jesus welcomes a desperate and doubting faith, and he teaches his disciples to depend on him for what only he can do. So let's read Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, this is Jesus and Peter, James, and John, coming to the rest of the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I've brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Verse 21, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So we see Jesus welcoming desperate and doubting faith and teaching his disciples what it means to depend on him for what only he can do. So let's walk through this story in three steps to learn what true faith looks like as we follow him along the way of Jesus. And it shows us Dependent faith, doubting faith, or desperate faith, doubting faith, and dependent faith. 
So first, desperate faith. So life's hard. And when it's hard, do you sometimes find it's hard to trust Jesus? I meet monthly with some other pastors in our area, and part of our time is sharing from our lives and our ministries, and then spending extended time praying for one another. And every time we gather, or most of the time when we gather, we start the time just reviewing a list of what we call just assumptions and guidelines for our time together. And one of the reminders is this quote, and no one really knows who said this first. And maybe you've heard it before. Be kind. Everyone is fighting a great battle. If you're not familiar with that, I encourage you to write it down and just remember that every day. How many of our interactions would be different if we had in mind to be kind because everyone is fighting a great battle? Everyone is burdened with something. Everyone in this room is burdened with something. And here we see a father carrying a great burden. He's desperate, and he brings his desperate situation to Jesus. So here's the context. Jesus and three of his closest disciples were up on a mountain. He was transfigured before them, showing him his radiant glory as the one true God, and then being declared the one true king. And so they come down the mountain to rejoin the rest of the disciples, and there's a commotion, and then a man speaks up in verses 18, 17 and 18, and he tells Jesus that he's bringing his disabled son to Jesus. And he says, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, I mean, can you picture this? Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So it's a desperate situation, and so far no one's been able to help this man and his son. His son has a condition that no one's been able to fix, so he brings him to Jesus for final hope. His son has a lot of problems, so he has seizures, convulsions, his mouth gets rigid like lockjaw, he can't hear or speak, his mouth foams with drool, and it's been dangerous, so later the father says that he's, his son's thrown into fire or water, which could kill him, so this is a kind of a self-destructive experience, and he says this has happened since childhood, so we don't know how many years have gone by, but it seems like quite some time. So do you see how desperate this man must be? Can you imagine how heart-wrenching it's been for this man over the years? Seeing his son overtaken with a seizure, seeing his son convulsing, no doubt frightening moments. Some of you know what this is like. Some of you have experienced seizures. Some of you have loved ones who have or do experience seizures. I grew up with one of my brothers who had a lot of these symptoms in this text. Um, his name was Tyler. He passed away a couple years ago. And uh, throughout his life, he would have seizures and many of these similar kinds of symptoms. He couldn't speak. There's many times when he was severely sick. And I remember just spending days with him in the ER and just scared and sad. And some of you know what this unique desperation of a parent with a child is in that kind of situation, which is utterly unique. Maybe your child was diagnosed with cancer and you weren't sure or aren't sure what the future is going to be, what's the path forward, or your child starts developing a speech impediment or certain behaviors that um, are concerning or deep anxiety, or your spouse has a stroke and you're not sure how the path of recovery will be, as a friend of mine recently experienced. 
or you feel desperate and you're not sure what to do. So I wonder if you realize just how directly Christianity, the Bible, speak to these situations. The story of the Bible and the ministry of Jesus show us that God cares deeply about these kinds of hard situations. The Bible says they were all part of a story that had a very good beginning, and then when sin entered the world, death and disease and disability came in its wake. They were not part of the original good beginning. So things were made good, and then things went bad. And then Jesus came into the world to deal with both sin and suffering. Both sin and its consequences and the effects of sin in a fallen world and the brokenness that's come in its wake. So he came to remove not only the curse of eternal death, but also the pain of disease and disability. So the story of the Bible is the, story, the true story of the world, and it's headed toward a new creation where all, where all will be made new. Resurrected bodies made whole, not just in heaven with spirits. Our future isn't that ultimately. It's the resurrection of the body in a new creation where all will be made well and all God's people will be whole and healed. And this is what Jesus' miracles are about. If you've been with us through the Gospel of Mark, we've seen this time and again. He didn't just do miracles as kind of magic tricks to just show that he had power or just to show that he's God. You don't see him just kind of levitating rocks and saying, look, I can do this. Can anyone else? Right? He's not just doing tricks to show off. He's doing miracles as these mini acts of restoration. It's a foretaste of things to come. It's the inbreaking of that future new creation into our present broken world. He's showing that his kingdom is here and his kingdom has come to solve all of our problems, both sin and sickness and disease and eternal death and disabilities. So this is why he's forgiving sin and healing people. And this is why his miracles then weren't just tricks, but they were acts of renewal, pictures of renewed creation. So you see then that Jesus, he's drawn to the disabled. Have you noticed that? Sometimes I think we, we rightly are impressed with his miracles and say, wow, look, see, he's really God. But do you notice the kinds of things he kept doing? He was drawn to the disabled and to the diseased and to the desperate. You can't read through the Gospels without seeing that Jesus had a deep care for people in these conditions. Our culture, very different. Our culture as a whole and the trajectory it's headed on seems to value people based on performance and contribution to society in the way that we measure contribution. And so often the disabled are overlooked and increasingly aborted. But Jesus sees them and loves them deeply. They matter to him, so they should matter to us. And what's interesting about this particular story is that there's another layer here because the primary cause of these symptoms, symptoms is not actually physical but spiritual. So this boy's situation in particular is because of a demon. So this man says to Jesus that his son has a spirit that makes him mute and do these things. It's the reason his son has these symptoms. And Jesus affirms this. And he'll, we'll see, cast out this demon. Now, at this point, though, many modern people would then quickly dismiss this story as a product of its time, 
right? I think many people believed in demons back then. We know better now. Uh, they weren't sophisticated. We know, though, that there's other physical and psychological explanations. But we've been seeing all through the Gospel of Mark that they actually had a very nuanced view. They distinguished between sickness and demon possession, and sometimes when it was both. So it wasn't just, well, a demon must be influencing this situation. Sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes there's just a demon and it has nothing to do with a physical symptom, but a demon needs to be cast out. Sometimes there's physical concerns and disability. It has nothing to do with demonic influence. And sometimes, like this case, it's both. So in fact, if anything, the modern world tends to be a bit more narrow and less nuanced, right? Because we often rule out the possibility of a demonic influence like we see happening right here. We reduce everything to physical and psychological explanations. We don't have a category for the possibility of spiritual influence. But there's many people who work in the medical field who have said, yeah, there does seem to be some cases that are beyond physical and psychological explanation. It seems that sometimes there is a spiritual presence and force at work. And so here's the question to ask then, which worldview best explains the complexity of our experiences? Which worldview can account for what seems to be physical and psychological and spiritual factors? The Christian worldview is the one that's able to account for this, and we see this nuanced and complex view on the pages of Scripture here. So let's not dismiss this then too quickly. So here's this father then with a son who has many problems, and in this case, the source of them is a demonic influence. What happens? Well, he says to Jesus in verse 18, I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they weren't able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. There seems to be this note of exasperation on him. And it seems to be directed at everyone. It reminds me of the old SNL skit, um, your company's computer guy. So Jimmy Fallon comes next to someone. They can't figure out their computer problem. He's like, hit F1 colon, this space, this, and they're confused. They have no idea what to do. And he just at some point says, move, right, and pushes them aside. And then he goes, taps a few things, problem solved. It's, a, it's about like what Jesus is going to do here, but with a good attitude. Um, and so he draws attention to the root issue around him. The problem here is that no one trusts him. No one's looking to him with dependent faith. And so he says, how long am I going to be with you, you faithless generation? Now, I don't know his tone, so I'm even careful not to want to put my own emotion and emphasis into that. We always need to be careful with that. Sometimes we can read Jesus and just impose a certain kind of personality onto him. So I want to be careful. So I don't, I don't know if there's just exasperation here, but it seems like there's something like that going on. Either way, he's drawing attention to their faithlessness. Everyone seems to lack faith. The disciples lack faith. They couldn't cast out the demon, even though Jesus had given them authority to do it before. And in the end, he'll say that they need to pray. So it seems like they weren't actually even praying in this situation. They're relying on their own kind of new ability to cast out demons, not looking to God. This man lacks faith as well. Look at verse 22. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So do you see that? If you can do anything... He's not confident in Jesus. It sounds more like, well, I've tried everything. I mean, if you can figure it out, it's worth a shot. I'll stick around. But I doubt it. And so Jesus makes this point in verse 23. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. So in story after story, before this, we've seen people coming to Jesus with dependent faith. 
and they know that Jesus can do it, and they depend on him to do it. Like the leper in chapter 1, who doesn't say, if you can, but he says, if you're willing. He knows Jesus can, so he appeals to Jesus' heart, if you're willing, and Jesus, of course, is willing. Or the woman who reaches out to just touch his garment to be healed, because she trusts that he can, and so she reaches out with dependence, absolute confidence in him and his ability to, but this man has small faith, and we can understand that. He's desperate. He's not had any help so far in life, so he's hopeless. It's hard to trust in these times. It's hard to keep holding on to hope. Maybe some of you feel that. And so even in the midst of this meager faith, Jesus stays and responds to this man's desperation. So second, though, we see a doubting faith. So the man's desperate, but he's also doubting. Jesus poked at his statement, if you can, so he's drawing attention to this man's faith, if you can. And I think what this man says next is profound, and I think can give some of us hope this morning, maybe the hope that you need this morning. Look at verse 24. Immediately the father of the child, so this is after Jesus addresses his weak faith here. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. What an amazing statement. So he's acknowledging that his faith is small, and he's asking Jesus to give him more. So this is at the same time an expression of faith and doubt. Do you see that? He's saying, I trust and I doubt. It's mingled together. So this gives us a category that many people need and don't have. It means that faith exists in degrees, and it can fluctuate from moment to moment. Many people think that it, there's either one or the other. You either have faith or you doubt. You either believe or you doubt. You can't have both. But here this man says, I trust and I doubt. I believe and I have unbelief. He's firmly declaring his faith. He's not lying. He does trust and he's acknowledging honestly his lack of faith, his doubt. So notice he doesn't deny his doubts nor does he let his doubts keep him from coming to Jesus. He doesn't wait until his doubts are gone at this point. He doesn't go away, try to stir up a more confident faith, and then come to Jesus. He just comes with honesty. He takes whatever amount of faith he has, if it's real, and he gives it to Jesus. He brings it to him, and you notice what Jesus does. He receives it. It's not ideal, of course, Full, confident faith is always the goal. It's always what we're working toward. But Jesus will receive your faith no matter how small it is if it's real. On another occasion, Jesus celebrated having even a mustard seed, a tiny seed of faith. So some of you may feel like this man. You have faith, but it feels particularly weak. Maybe you feel like your weak faith isn't enough to bring to Jesus, and so you're keeping your distance from him until you can muster something that feels stronger. I was talking with someone recently who's exploring what it would mean to start following Jesus, and he said he thinks it's all true, but he's hesitant to follow Jesus because he doesn't trust his faith to be strong enough. He doesn't trust himself to make good on his commitment. He doesn't trust himself to not just give up like he's given up on so many other things. Maybe you feel that way. You feel compelled by Jesus. You're here this morning after all. You want to follow him, 
you still have doubts, but you do have this deeper conviction that he really is the savior of the world. He really is the true king, but you feel like you can't really follow him or begin to follow him with such a weak faith. And so here's what this man's response shows us. It shows us that Jesus welcomes us when we come to him honestly and say even, I believe, help my unbelief. He welcomes us if we say, I trust you. Feels like just barely, but I do. (laughs) Help me trust you. Here's another way to think about it. If you have weak faith that's keeping you from following Jesus, keeping you distant from him, don't let your weak faith keep you from following Jesus. Let that be how you come to Jesus. Let your weak faith be what you bring to him. In fact, a faith that acknowledges its own weakness is exactly what he's looking for. It's part of the nature of faith to acknowledge, I'm weak, you're strong, I'm coming to you for help. So it's not just I have faith, but I want you to help me over here. We need him to even help us with our own faith. I mean, faith itself from beginning to end is a gift from God anyways. So however much we have was a gift from him, working it in our heart by the Spirit. And so we ask him to do more. Please give me more of what you started to give. And some of you have been Christians for a number of years. And you have lingering or new doubts. And it's important that we talk about this. It's important that we acknowledge that we have doubts. I've struggled with doubts at different times uh, in my life as a Christian. For long stretches of time, I didn't really have doubts. It was all compelling to me. I trusted and I wanted to understand more. And as I learned it, I believed, embraced the Bible whole. But there have been times even recently when I'll think, wait a minute, is this really true? Is Jesus really who the Bible claims him to be? Is this all for real? And I have to stop and I have to rethink it again and come back to a place of more stable confidence. But even if I do that one day and come back to a measure of confidence, the next day I may be destabilized again. And I may think, hold on, am I just making this stuff up? And then I have to rethink things again, but even in that whole posture, it's, I have doubts, but I'm trusting, and I'm examining them in God's presence, saying, God, help me here. And so, if you have doubts, don't be alarmed. Faith is often present in degrees. There's often doubt mingled with our faith. So, just keep coming to Jesus and saying, I believe, and now here's something I'm doubting. Please help me with my unbelief, and then pursue help. Ask a Christian friend to talk through this with you. Find a helpful resource. Um, we have a number of them in our resource corner for exploring Christianity. I'd be helpful or happy to recommend some resources for you as well. And then as a church family, let's keep being a place that's safe for people to be honest about their doubts. Francis Schaeffer used to say that people deserve honest answers to honest questions. And so we want to be a place where we can be free to bring our sincere and honest questions and provide honest answers, or even an honest, I don't know. Let's look for the answer together. So we want to be a safe place for there to be faith and doubt, for there to be faith mingled with unbelief, because doubts don't need to be hidden. We'll find hope and help when we walk through them in community together. What a tragedy is for some people to struggle with their doubts alone, with no help, 
because they're afraid of what someone might say to them if they bring it up. Because they'll say it to someone who doesn't have a category for degrees of faith or isn't honest about their own doubts. And then so that they're worried they'll feel, they'll feel some shame uh, from that. But if someone opens up to you about their doubts, don't turn away. Don't shame them. Don't dismiss them. Listen patiently and offer help. Work through it together. Perhaps the best thing you can do is actually just pray together. Isn't that what this man's doing with his doubts? The first thing he does when he finds out his doubts exposed is he's, he prays to Jesus and says, I believe, help my unbelief. And so how does Jesus respond? Well, Jesus, I love this, he answers the man's specific request. The man asked for help with his unbelief, right? And so Jesus does. And how does he help the man's unbelief? He's actually solving two problems here. One, he's going to help this son of the father. But he's also responding to this request, help my unbelief, because he's going to help the man believe. And how does he help the man believe? By showing the man more of himself. That's what strengthens our faith, by seeing Jesus. You don't cultivate faith by just trying harder to believe. So Jesus doesn't say, well, try harder. Believe more. I'll wait, right? No, you don't get rid of doubt by just trying not to doubt. You can't stop doubting by denying that you doubt. What, What do you have to do? You have to strengthen trust in Jesus by seeing more of Jesus, by looking to him, by knowing who he is, by learning that he's worthy of trust. Faith has an object, in other words. It's not just some virtue that we have in isolation. Faith has an object, and faith looks to that object and has trust strengthened based upon the worthiness of that object. And so Jesus presents himself, and we see that in verse 25. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. So this man here was helpless to heal his son for years, and then with one statement, one statement, his son's healed. Jesus commands the spirit to leave and never return again. It doesn't actually look like it helped at first, though. Sometimes when Jesus helps, things get worse before they get better, and that's what happens here. I wonder if you've experienced that. Verse 26, after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. In other words, what'd you do, Jesus? But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So the boy appeared dead, but Jesus raised him. It's a mini picture of resurrection. Mark's using resurrection language here, drawing attention to the fact that people said he looked like he's dead, and Jesus lifted him and raised him up. This isn't just a random miracle, it's a pointer toward the restoration that Jesus is coming to bring that began in his own resurrection from the dead. So Jesus will die and rise again, and then he will return to resurrect his people and renew the world. All will be well, no more disability, no more disease, no more demonic influence, and this little miracle is a pointer to that resurrected time. So it's a little glimpse of what Jesus came to do, and Jesus is doing this to show that this man, to show this man that he is worthy of faith. He is worthy of trust. He's getting rid of the man's doubts by showing him who he is. That's how Jesus cultivates faith in people. He didn't just go around saying, try harder to believe. He gave them reasons to believe. 
namely who he was. He showed them that he's a worthy object of faith. He's trustworthy. So when we come to Jesus, when you come to Jesus and offer that prayer, I believe. Help my unbelief. How do you expect God to answer that prayer? Well, one of the ways he answers that prayer is by leading you to see more of who he is in Jesus, to strengthen your faith in him. So you don't just deny your doubts. You don't just try hard to believe. You look to Jesus. You learn more about who he is, why he came, what is his heart for you. And you learn to trust him that way. So the man walked away with less doubt and more faith because he had experienced more of Jesus. And so now we move to the last part of the story, which shows us dependent faith. So after this, Jesus was alone with his disciples, and they ask him a reasonable question at this point. They ask him why they couldn't cast out the demon. So Jesus had given them authority to cast out demons before, and they did it before. So why didn't it work this time? And Jesus gives the final lesson, and we'll be brief here, in verse 29. He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. That's interesting. So apparently, it seems, there's some demons that are harder to cast out than others. And the lesson is this. In this case, it's especially important to pray. So do you see the lesson for them that Jesus is giving? The whole story is moving toward this last little conversation with the disciples because this is the lesson on the pathway to disciple, of discipleship. They were trying to do this in their own strength rather than relying on God's. The lesson for them is that their faith needs to be more dependent. They need to trust him to do the things that he alone can do. So the point for us is that the things that we most need in life are the things that God alone can do. And so what do we then need to do? We need to depend on him. And we express that in prayer. He alone can give someone faith. He alone can heal. He alone can free people from the slavery to sin or demonic influence. And this is why we need to be people of dependent prayer, looking to God to do what he alone can do. So really the lesson for the disciples is the same lesson for you and I this morning. And it's this, faith expresses itself in dependent prayer. So when Jesus is saying, essentially, you didn't pray, he's not just saying you should have prayed. He's saying, you should have trusted me. You should have depended on God to do what he alone can do and therefore pray. And so if the lack of prayer is there because there's a lack of dependence, a lack of dependent faith, then the disciples are kind of just like that man, aren't they? Their faith is in degrees, just like us. One way you can find that your faith is not surging at full is to ask, how much do you pray? Because if you have a faith that's dependent on what God alone can do, that will find expression in asking him to do what he alone can do. And so we all then are like that man. I believe, help my unbelief. And so then what do we need? Well, we need exactly what that man needed. We need to look to Jesus. Because looking to Jesus is what cultivates faith. So look at Jesus in this story. Look at his power. No one's able to heal this kid for years, no one's able to help the father's son, totally controlled by a demon, and Jesus rebukes the demon with a word. No one's able to do that. Look at his power. And look at Jesus in his patience. Everyone here is half-hearted in their faith here. The man even doubts Jesus. The disciples have weak faith, 
and Jesus doesn't walk away. He stays, and he patiently cultivates even this doubting faith. And look at Jesus and his compassion here. The Father asked for compassion and help, and that's what Jesus gave. Jesus is drawn to the desperate and the doubting and the disabled. His compassion is what moved him to heal this boy. And look at Jesus' costly love. This boy looked dead and was raised, and it's appointed to Jesus' own death and resurrection, which is what it will cost him to bring the final and full healing for all God's people together. And so he's on his way to the cross for costly love. So when you feel desperate or have doubts, let's take it to Jesus and depend on him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this moment represented in this story and this lesson in faith. And so we pray that you would help us in all of our various situations represented in this room, some of us feeling particularly desperate, some of us may feel fine, but we have no idea what's coming later this week. Some of us feel very aware of our doubts, or perhaps this morning don't, but know that they tend to come back quickly. And some of us feel dependent on you, but we also know that we're prone to self-sufficiency and forgetting you through the week. And so we pray that what you've been doing in our own hearts and in revealing your glory in Jesus to us, we pray this would continue through this week and that we would bring all of our desperate moments and doubtful thoughts and dependence to you. Amen.